ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 beautiful people. How's it going? So anyway, this week on the Ascend podcast, I met up with a guy called Chris Paradox in London. This conversation was recorded about two weeks ago. Really is such a powerful and inspiring conversation. Chris was somebody who, quote unquote, had the perfect life. He had the big house. He had the perfect marriage, the big car, the, the big salary. He had everything going for him. And one day he decided to completely turn his back on that life and he decided to go on this journey where he basically just packed his um, sleeping bag up and a a bag full of books and he decided to live underneath a tree. Yes, that's right, live underneath a tree. And the lessons and the introspection from this conversation, as you will see in this journey that unfolded for Chris, really is a really powerful journey and I know you're going to love it. And just before we jump this conversation, as I mentioned, I think it was in the last podcast intro that the podcast was really on the verge of creating a really great connection with a great organization. And I'm really proud and happy to announce that that has now unfolded. And it really is down to all you guys who listen to this podcast and this community that we've built up over the last couple of years with this thing. So basically, this connection that I've created is is, a, is for an up-and-coming event that's coming up in London in a place called Greenwich from the 16th of August to the 18th of August, which is a month, which is sorry, which is a, a Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. I think it's potentially three weeks from now from this podcast recording coming out today. But basically, this event is called the Breaking Convention, and it's the one of the biggest psychedelic conferences in the world. It has over 200 speakers minds who people who talk about psychedelics consciousness spirituality meditation and many other topics in between as well and it really is a great opportunity for the podcast because it provides us as it if us as a podcast from especially for me to get access to lots of interesting minds and in the process i can have all these interesting conversations and bring them all to you at the same time and in the process, share all these interesting people's journeys and works and adventures they've been on. And it really is a great opportunity because normally, as you know, I'm traveling around all over the place, which I, I still will be doing. But this gives me the opportunity to access guests that I wouldn't normally be able to access. There is guests coming from to this event from all over the world. And this the, the event have really been cool. They've, they've, they've allowed me press access to all these different people. And they've basically given me a space at this event at the event and what I'm going to be able to do is just have podcasts whenever I want throughout throughout all the weekend and just be able to do podcasts with all the different speakers that are coming through so it is such a fantastic opportunity and it gives you access to some amazing conversations that I can bring to you all so I'm really excited about that so all I'm saying is is that 
if you can please check it out it really is a cool event and maybe as well when you're there as well it'll be an opportunity because i'm going to be sort of connecting and walking around so if you do go to this event there's there's a possibility that we can even meet up and, and hang out hang out for a bit as well i'm going to have the whole weekend free so i'm sure there's going to be loads of opportunities where we can hang out or just i even just have a quick chat or whatever it is so all i'm saying is i'll definitely recommend checking it out it's a great opportunity for the podcast and i would definitely recommend heading over and supporting supporting this event and and if you feel like you want to go to it definitely i would recommend buying a ticket and going to it it would really mean a lot and i just want to say as well that as you know the best way to support the podcast is through the patreon page the Patreon page really is the best way to, to help me to keep doing what I'm doing. I also have a one-off donation option. But as you know, I'm traveling all over the place. I'm doing conversations. This podcast is a one-man band, as you know. And I'm really trying to push this thing to the next level. And I really want to just show that a podcast that talks about alternative topics really can rise to, rise to the top and really just show people out there that there is a deep thirst for this knowledge out there. And I want to continue to keep expanding this and continue to push this to the next level. And honestly, I just want to say that this thing would not be possible without all of you. And I love you all for that. I'm glad that all of our journeys, everyone who listens to these conversations, are just all our journeys are intertwining. And it really is a powerful thing. And I know for a fact... One day, I'm sure we will all meet up. So anyway, I love you all. And this conversation honestly is a gem. So enjoy this conversation. So anyway, I've really wanted to have a conversation with you for a, a, quite a while now. And I remember um, looking up on, I came across an article on, online and it was talking about this crazy guy who went and lived underneath a tree. And I would love to love for you to sort of explain that journey, what unfolded for you. Because I know you had a very different life and then one day you just decided to give it all up and explore this avenue. So would you just be able to, for people who don't know, describe the story? Um, so we have to go back to the year 2000. And I was working for a recruitment advertising agency. I was running their media buying division. And uh, in in many ways, I I was quite successful. Uh, I was running a division of the business that had 40 staff in three offices, London, Bristol, Manchester, earning about 70K a year. And uh, I I want to make sure I get the order right. Uh, Yeah, I am my division of the business regularly made the most money of all the divisions so I was kind of the golden boy Mm -hmm. and I had like 12 uh, directors of the business of the main agency and one day uh, the boss came and said to me you know we're going to give you shares in the company and basically promote you to full director and we're going to basically they said they're going to take me to this really really posh restaurant in Holland Park uh, you know to celebrate my ascension ascension. (laughs) Uh, oh that was quite quite pleased myself with that one um so uh, i remember we we all left the office i think it was a thursday evening got in a cab together with my two of the directors who i worked most closely with and as soon as we got in the cab it was almost as if their language they started speaking an alien language 
because they started talking about staff members in a way that I'd never heard them talk about. And it was basically, right, we're gonna get rid of them, get, get rid of them, get them out. And, they, and I realized I'd been invited into the inner circle. Mm. And in the inner circle, the people that were, some of them were my staff members, some of them were colleagues, were seen as disposable commodities, basically. So that was the first shock. And I sat there kind of quiet in the back of the cab because I, you know, I didn't want to rock the boat. I was very pleased yeah. to have been promoted, but I thought it was odd. Anyway, we got to the restaurant and massive table, uh, 12 literally middle-aged white men from Chiswick, <laughs> half of them going through a midlife crisis, buying TVR bikes. <laughs> it was so stereotypical, yeah. Uh, you know, they were buying uh, TVR uh, Triumph motorbikes and TVR sports cars. All married, all lived in Chiswick. And anyway, they, we were, you know, quaffing and drinking and having fun and there were speeches and everything. And in my mind, I've always ha been a bit of a deviant uh, in my, and I've always had a, um, a questioning mentality about, you know, why are we here? Mm -hmm. What's it all about? Mm -hmm. And I thought these are the captains of industry. These are the smartest men I know. In my mind, I had it. I'm going to ask them one by one. I'm going to go around the table. I'm going to ask them, what's it all about? Why are we here? What's oh, the meaning of life? Yeah. And I literally went <laughs> one by one by one by one. And every single one said something of the likes of it's dog eat dog, kill or be killed, get what you can while you can. Love means nothing. It's all an illusion. <laughs> it literally, it was the most nihilistic yeah. cutthroat shark, you know, dragon's den, shark's tail. Um, and I literally remember in the cab on the way back being completely disillusioned it's a really interesting word disillusioned because it means having your illusions taken mm -hmm. away but how you feel is terrible but it should be good to have your illusion illusions taken away and ultimately it was yeah. but at the time i it was basically it's like i've been climbing a, a ladder a sort of corporate career ladder mm -hmm. for seven years at that time and i suddenly realized it was up against the wrong wall like where i was climbing mm -hmm. I didn't want to be there. It's like, what the hell am I doing climbing this ladder? And uh, I, I just, the way I think I sort of rationalize it is that I realized that the people I worked for, worked for were Sith Lords, <laughs> the Sith Lords of High Holborn, I call them. And I, I just realized I don't want anything to do with you. And I suddenly, you know, I was never, I guess I was passionate about the business, but I was more passionate because it was my business and my staff and it was our team. But I suddenly just didn't give a shit about yeah. advertising or anything. Like, it yeah, was like, definitely. what the hell am I doing here? And then I, I went through a process where I realized I'm pleasing my mum. That's why I was oh, doing really? it. And I think a lot of people, if they look at why they do the jobs they do, it's like they do a career because they know their parents mm -hmm. or, or the, the people they went to university with would see it as a good choice. And it actually had nothing to do with my core, my soul. But it was something that my mum could be proud and tell the neighbours. You know, my my son yeah. runs a media buying business, and as I started to have these realizations, I, I just basically um, I didn't at that time make a decision to leave. I was going to ask you that was it sort of a process of just going, yeah, I'm doing it now, or was it more no, gradual? No, this is uh, so I actually ended up in the park in April 2002. This that I'm telling you about happened in something like February 2000. And what happened was, is that I don't want to go into too long a story, but I mean, it's a podcast, yeah, so I can, yeah. yeah. Um, um, I would, I'd say I'm one of those people that has a, a connection to my soul. I've always had an inner voice guiding me, separate to the voice in the head. Mm -hmm. um, I believe we have three voices, voice in the head, voice in the heart, voice in the gut. 
gut instinct is really powerful and really important uh but the voice in the heart is one that is the, the one we least hear it's the one that gets you on the path to do what you were born to do and that kind of stuff conversations with god book one by neil donald borsch mm -hmm. picked up the book started reading it halfway through immediately it was like okay this is a god i can live with i would describe myself as in a way i'm an atheist because i don't believe in the god of religion mm -hmm. the god you know a bloke who sends you to hell and punishes you and answers your prayer ridiculous obviously yeah. uh but a higher power definitely i've always believed in a higher power and when i read this book it's like, oh yeah this is this is god this is yeah. a god that loves everyone unconditionally and doesn't send anyone to hell and doesn't need anything from any of us mm -hmm. because it's all powerful yeah. so I, I read the book and i was like yeah I, I, i'm down with this and then there was a line in the middle of it where god is uh saying that he's that basically everyone is basically there is nothing that is not god so we're all part of the oneness we're all mm -hmm. part of god and the way he described it was I have sent you nothing but angels. And the words nothing but angels were in black in the middle of the book. And I literally remember, I literally had a, I went in, I had a fit or a trance or whatever you want to call it, dropped the book, fell onto the floor. And I checked afterwards. I was literally in this trance for about an hour and a half. Mm -hmm. And while I was in the trance, it was like I, cosmic scenes of a battle of good and evil going on on planet earth. And the dream was like, you have some part to play in this. But, but the, and I remember the actual experience was, as I said, read nothing but angels. I started thinking about my sister and how much I loved her. Then my mum and dad and how much I loved her. And then my brother, then my friends. And then I literally just animals, nature, the planet. And my heart expanded to the size of the universe. So when I came out of it, I was a, basically a gibbering hippie who just loved everything and everyone. And I remember saying to myself, oh nothing but angels everyone's an angel i wonder mm. what that looks like yeah. and i left my house i lived at the bottom of in blackheath at the bottom of lucian hill walked out of my house and, the, and i looked right and the first thing i saw was a group of about eight black youths you know 14 to 18 running down the hill carrying cricket bats and pipes and chains after a single white guy in his 20s with murderous intent that's the first thing i saw yeah. And because I had this nothing but angels, I literally saw them as angels. Oh. And when I say angels, I don't mean with wings. I mean, yeah. as you would an innocent baby. Yeah. Like a baby, a ba everyone knows a baby is perfect and innocent. Yeah. No judgment. You don't judge a baby. Yeah. I saw them without judgment as perfect beings, even though they were trying to kill this guy. Mm -hmm. So it, that was the first thing that I remembered. It's like, oh, I'm seeing with completely different eyes here. And without any volition from myself, my body walked me up the hill towards where the guy was running. He ran into my next door neighbor's front garden. I got there just before they did. So I walked in between and I walked into the garden. There was a guy standing on a stoop, which obviously his mate, he ran to his mate. I was in between them and then the guys came and they, so it's literally me standing between yeah. them and the guy. <laughs> And the, the, the ringleader was bigger than me and he had a pipe and he was swearing blue murder about something this guy did to his sister. I don't remember, yeah. but it was, I knew what he was wanted. He wanted to kill him. And so he was kind of swearing and shouting over my shoulder, not physically assaulting me. And I remember just kind of, I didn't even think, I was literally being puppeted. Yeah. And I was just saying, ah, oh, bro, yeah, you don't want to do that. This isn't you. This isn't you. No, man, you don't want to, no one, there's no need for violence. I was saying that kind of thing. He was ignoring me and shouting over the top. And, and this is the bit that really made it for me. And I was perfectly calm, perfectly calm, saw him as an angel, mm -hmm. no judgment, no fear. And then for a split second, it was like the shutters were pulled, it was like, like that. 
and I suddenly had a normal perception mm. and I shat myself. Like in that moment, I realized that he could, he, it looked like he was about to hit me with the pipe. And I, it was like, oh, and then bang. And then I was back to the old perception. And then I was totally fine again. So in my, you know, in my understanding now, 17 years later, you know, it's all about perception. It's all about who's looking. Yeah, and most of the, our normal waking consciousness is, I call it scared little boy. We don't like to think about it, but 90% of what mm. we do is comes from fear. And when you, for whatever reason, you're gifted with the perception that comes from love, yeah, everything's different. And so I kept saying to him, no, you don't want to do this. If the police come, you know what will happen? Black Hughes, you're going to get arrested. You don't want to do this. And as I said that, wow, 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 there's a massive siren. And it was like, it was a moment for, they all stopped. They all stopped and looked at each other like meerkats. Mm-hmm. And there was this pause and the, the siren went on and they scarpered and they just, they just ran off. And, and I just kind of, I was in a daze and the guy said, oh, thanks mate, thank you, thank you. And I was like, oh, I didn't do anything. Yeah. And it was a, pi- it was a fire engine, <laughs> which mm. it wasn't even the police. Mm. Um, so that, to me, that was just the cherry on the top. And I walked back home and basically for the next three weeks, I kept that state of consciousness. And I call it, I took my judgment head off. So the experience was is that I'd stopped judging people. Mm-hmm. Like we're constantly judging each other. Better, worse, ugly, this, that, the other. And for three weeks, and I, I had to go into the office and I was running an advertising agency, a ruthless business mm. with this perception. Yeah. So it was like, I call it like, it's like I, I woke up and I was a hippie overnight. Yeah. And I went into the office and I was like, I was like, oh no. <laughs> you know, I, was, I was full hippie. So I had this thing like, all my people, all, well, all my mates, my acquaintances and a couple of mates at work, my actual mates, mm-hmm. they just thought I was having a weird turn, but they still liked me. But my colleagues at work were like, what the fuck? Who is this person? Yeah. Then they made me redundant at work. It wasn't really redundant. They kind of shoved me to the side and got rid of me mm-hmm. because I was just a prior at work. And I actually didn't want to be there anymore, as yeah, I said. Yeah. So everyone was happy. Uh, I was kicked out of the advertising agency. Wife left me. It was just me and my boys. And I said, right, what am I going to do now? I know I'm going to work for Friends of the Earth door-to-door fundraising. So I literally went from 70 grand a year, Alfa Romeo 2.6, to riding my bike around Crystal Palace, knocking on doors for commission only to raise money. for Literally almost overnight. I remember because I got my car... I was allowed to keep my car for a month. And the first time I went out fundraising, I, dr- I was, dr- this is for Friends of the Earth, by yeah, the way. Yeah. <laughs> I drove my Alfa Romeo and what I had to do is park it two miles away because I couldn't let anyone see somebody <laughs> <laughs> collecting money for Friends of the Earth in an Alfa Romeo. Yeah. So I'd park the car miles away <laughs> and then funny. walk up to their doors. And then obviously they took the car back and then I got a bike and yeah. then, I was, then I was right on. Uh, so I did that for about three months and that was great actually. But then I discovered that for most big charities, 80% of the money goes to admin fees yeah it does and that there's you know there's basically basically it's all corrupt the mm-hmm. whole system's corrupt i read david ike i read children of the matrix yeah i started listening to bob marley i watched bill hicks bill hicks has got this great uh, piece where he says anybody in media and advertising kill yourselves you're the scum <laughs> of the earth you think i'm joking no i i mean it kill you. and i literally was re- i just left and yeah, i read yeah that. so bill hicks bob marley david ike mm-hmm. i was just radicalized so i went from this kind of hippie spiritual awakening to hardcore radical anarchist uh, anti-capitalist mm. you know that thing and <laughs> i remember some of the people that i met at the fundraising company uh, they had a party and i went to the party and i've always i always joke about it is that i went full david ike i learned all about the banking system and i yeah. wrote a, well this this was later but i i knew all about the banking system and the con of money 
and I, I, I was able to empty a room in five minutes flat. Yeah. I, I literally had that power. Because I do you know that 97% of the UK's money supply is created out of thin air, out of debt, and yeah. it can never be paid back, and it's how the bankers rule the world? Empty room like that. And um, so I, I just became more and more isolated. Mm-hmm. So I'd had this experience, this transformational experience, but nobody that I loved or loved me could understand it or go along with me. Mm-hmm. Wife left, friends, everyone thought I'd gone crazy mum disowned me basically because mm-hmm. I'd left this great job uh, to, to go door to door fundraising you know most parents but I'm not going to like that and I'd always had a difficult relationship with my mum so I was completely isolated we're leading up to the part pit don't worry so that's why it wasn't overnight that's kind of what I wanted to say it was a long journey of yeah. about a year and a half and what happened was is um, obviously I couldn't afford the house we were living in so the boys went back to live with their mums and I got a room in a bed sit and uh, that's when I read The Power of Now, uh, The Peaceful Warrior, The Celestine Prophecy, mm. David, all of the books that, you, you know, uh, yeah, The Alchemist, yeah. all of those yeah. books, I read them all at that same time. And uh, and I carried on reading all the Conversations with God book series. And so I started to meditate and do things like that. And more and more, I just felt I had no place in the world. Oh, yeah, I left Friends of the Earth. So I, I had no job. I didn't know what I was going to do with myself. I ended up losing the bed sit and staying on a friend's couch. What am I doing with my life? Like, what am I doing with my life? If, if after everything that's happened to me, this is where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And I remember stumbling back to my mate's house. It was the 11th of April, 2002. And I said, fuck it, I give up. I give up. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go and live. I'm going to go and f- I'm going to make myself homeless. I'm just going to go and... I in my I used to live near Battersea Park and I knew I knew where I was going to go. Mm-hmm. And the next day, I took a bin liner of books and a bin liner of uh, clothes, and I went down to Battersea Park and I walked around the park for about an hour, f- trying to find a place that was secluded. And I had to sleep a really nice sleeping mm-hmm. bag, trying to find a place that was secluded, because I, I just gave up. I just said I've, I've, I'm done with the world. I've got no place in the world. Uh, all my friends think I'm crazy. My wife's left me my mum's disowned me I'm alone Mm -hmm. so I just I'm just gonna go and live in the park uh and I remember I found a place it was in an area called the meadow so I used to joke that my address was number one the meadow Battersea Park and it was right by the tennis courts and it was it was beautiful there was a tree and I put my bin liners underneath a bush laid my sleeping bag out under the tree and you know tried to go to sleep and that first night uh I remember three things one was I was terrified of bugs because I don't know if you know this, but black people, we don't like bog. We don't like creep, creepy, crawly, anting, anting, you know. So I was bricking it that basically I'd wake up covered in ants and yeah. bugs. And um, so that was one thing that kept me up. Uh, the other thing is I was afraid it was going to rain because I didn't have a waterproof blanket at the time. I got one later, but I didn't. So I had some tree cover and it was April in, in England. So good chance of rain. So I was worried about rain and it actually did rain a little bit. It spat a little bit, but it wasn't too bad. And the third thing that kept me up is I just literally said to myself, am I mad? Yeah. Oh my God, is this what madness is? Like, is this how you become the mad black guy that lives in the park? I was literally thinking that. It's like, oh, this is how it happens. I had dreads as well. So I was like, I'm going to be oh, the... Dreads I well. had dreads, yeah. I, I'm going to so be another the... stereotype. Another stereotype. Yeah. Honestly, it was, that's why I'm actually writing a book about all this. Because it's so... It, it, it should be in a film. Because yeah, yeah. it's like... It's everything you, you we hear about in these archetypes. Um, but yeah, I was literally lying there 
genuinely questioning, am I mad? Like really genuinely, mm. I must be mad. Mu- a year ago I was earning 70 grand a year and married, you know what I mean? Like, mm. and now I'm, I've got nothing and nobody and I'm living in a punk. And I remember just running that over my head. Yeah, this is how madness happens. And um, somehow I must have fallen asleep because the next thing I remember was waking up. And you know when you wake up, before you actually open your eyes, but you know you're awake, mm-hmm. uh, it's kind of a uh, an in-between limbo-y kind of place. And I remember hearing this beautiful bird song, absolutely the most beautiful bird song I'd ever heard. And it was about coming from here. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, it sounded like, morning has brought... It might as well have been that. And I just listened to it and listened to it. And I opened my eyes. And I don't know birds, so let's just say, I don't know, a starling. Mm-hmm. And it was staring at me, singing to me. That's it. That's what it was like. It was like it was singing to me. Mm-hmm. And I looked up and it was like, it was like waking up in a Disney movie. Um, the sunlight was making rainbows through the dew drops. You know, it was an idyllic, heavenly scene. And I woke up, I describe it as waking up in heaven. Mm-hmm. And I said to myself, wow, if this is madness, I'm happy with madness. And I woke up and it was like I had, you know, what I describe now as an Eckhart Tolle experience. You know, he went to live on a park bench and became enlightened. And to some degree, for a limited period of time, I had a an enlightenment experience. Mm. And the best way to describe it is that everything I looked at, especially in, in Battersea Park, which is beautiful, mm. everything in nature was filled with light. I was constantly in bliss and i'd go to sell the big issue i started selling the big issue a week before yeah that, i want to ask way. you about that as well yeah so about a week before when i was staying on my mate's couch uh i don't know how i discovered it but i, I learned that with the big issue you buy it at the time you bought it for 50p and you could sell it for one pound 20 so yeah you can make 70p per magazine and it was independent you you go and buy them you take them to a pitch you sell them you make your money, you go and buy some more. Mm-hmm. So you, you, it, it gives homeless people this independence and self-determination, yeah. which I really loved. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'm going to do that. And you don't have to be on the streets. You just have to be homeless. And I was. So I went, I applied, da, 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 and I started selling it. And um, when I started selling it before I moved into the park for that week and a half, um, you know, I really, I was, I've always been a salesman. Yeah. So I, I stood up and I was like, Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Get your Big Issue magazine here. The only magazine that helps homeless people to help themselves. Always better to teach a starving man to fish than to give him food, blah, blah, blah. You know, so I'd give a good pitch and I'd make jokes. I'd say, oh, Brad Pitt's on the front, ladies and gentlemen. He's got a nice job. But you wouldn't mind getting your laughing gear around his giblets, you know, like market store patter. And I could sell, on average, I sold about five an hour. That's really good. It is really good. Um, And I made about uh, six quid because you always get tips. And sometimes people will say, I don't want the magazine, sell it on, and they just give you a quid. So you always make more than 70p a magazine. So I made about six quid, six to eight quid an hour, which was great. Mm-hmm. I'd work for four or five hours. That would be enough m- money for food. There was a place in Victoria called The Passage where you, homeless people can take their clothes and get them washed. You can have a shower. You can have breakfast. That's cool. Beautiful people who work there. Uh, so, you know, I was okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then I, obviously I moved in the park, and then I went. What I did is I got up in the morning. Uh, and went to get my big issue, big, issue, big issue magazines from Vauxhall, where the offices were. So I walked from Battersea Park to Vauxhall, got 20 magazines, walked down to my... I had a great pitch at the corner of Victoria Street, and I started to sell 
like I'd been selling for the week before. Yeah. But now I was selling, in inverted commas, while I was in bliss or while I was enlightened. And literally on the walk to Vauxhall, every person that I passed, I had this big beaming smile on my face. I, I went back to that nothing but angels thing. Everyone was just looking at me and smiling and like people, were, you know, they were giving me weird looks, but they were yeah. generally pleasant weird looks. Did you have your stuff with you as well? Like, did you carry your stuff around with you? No, I, I put all my stuff under a bush. All right. So I only had my bag for my big issues. So I was just, I, I mean, I, I had big dreads. I had camouflage pants. I looked a bit, I kind of looked like a black, dreadlock black guy that lives in a park, I must admit. <laughs> under a tree. Under a tree, yeah. And I, I wasn't smelly because I, I could have showers. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'd slept under a tree. What can I say? So I must have been a bit of a, a sight. In fact, I know I was a bit of a sight. Uh, but I was in this, I genuinely was in this state of innocence. Yeah. And anyway, so I got my magazines. I got to the pitch. I started selling. Same way that I'd normally been selling. But <coughs> what was different was that there was this internal joy. I was genuinely happy to be homeless and be selling the big issue. I can honestly say that. <coughs> Bless you. And... Uh, Immediately, I went from selling five magazines an hour to selling 15 to 20 magazines an hour. An hour, And instead of making six to eight pounds, I was making 40 to 60 pounds an hour Jesus. selling the big issue. I swear. I tell this story all the yeah, time. And, and, and what I did is I tested it. So <clears throat> I, I would do different pitches. I went to Sloan Square. I went down to um, St. James's. I, I, I sold at different pitches. I sold at different times of the day. I sold on Saturday and Sundays, not just when commuters were there. I sold in the rain mm -hmm. every single time. And what would happen is that people would run over to me from the other side of the street and say, I saw you selling the big issue yesterday. I just wanted to give you this and give me 20 pounds. And people would give me 10 and 20 pounds and five pounds all the time. And the amount of times people said, I don't normally buy the big issue, but I just love your energy. I just love your energy. That's what I heard all that I love your energy. And, you know, I, with hindsight, sort of reverse engineering it, it was about energy. I was radiating joy mm -hmm. and joy is a currency. People love to feel joy and people go to see stand up comedy. People see comedies, you know, people have a laugh with their mates. We love joy. Yeah, and I was joyously radiating joy and people wanted to give me money. I'll tell you one one specific example, which makes it really clear. So one particular morning when I was literally as enlightened as I've ever been, I was absolutely non-judgmentally unconditionally loving of everything and everyone complete like buddhaness and i got i got my magazines out and i held I lifted up the first one and before i could say good morning ladies and gentlemen a woman a beautiful woman in a business suit said i just love your energy gave me 20 pounds thank you very much good afternoon ladies and, gentlemen. and then somebody else gave me 10 pounds good ladies and, gentlemen. and someone else gave me another 10 i made a hundred and 140 pounds in 20 minutes selling 20 magazines which I know is a world record. No one has ever yeah. made that much money selling the big issue in 20 minutes. And it was, it was a divine experience. It was absolutely spiritual. Mm -hmm. It was magical. People were literally elbowing people out of the way to come and give me money. Um, so I had that experience and then I had tons of experiences like that. I'd be in the park or in the shop and someone would tap me on the shoulders. I saw you selling the big issue last week, 20 pounds. Happened all the time. So do you, do you think that in that moment that showed you that people are actually more willing to help than you actually what the, what the media perceive and what other people talk about and stuff? It, it showed me what the book told me. Nothing but angels. Yeah. Ultimately, everybody is good. Mm -hmm. Everybody is a 
a perfect child of God yeah. or a perfect child of the universe. Everybody, even sociopaths. I know people are not going to like this, mm -hmm. but if oneness is, mm -hmm. if we are all one, if it is a unified field, then if you actually follow that to its logical conclusion, everyone is part of the oneness and everyone is yeah. good. And that's what I experienced. I, when, when I had that perception and perspective that I completely loved myself and I loved everyone else, it gave people the permission to go to that place in themselves. Yeah, right. So people were just generous and loving and happy. But saying that though, people used to spit, at the same time, people always used to spit on me. Oh really? People are really nasty to big issue sellers. You wouldn't know this unless you were a big issue seller, but people spit, get a job, you know, nigger. You know, I had all of that, but it didn't touch me. And that's the thing is that when you love yourself, you don't get offended. You don't care. It doesn't matter yeah. what people call or say about you. Um, and so I didn't care. I, I, I honestly didn't mind. But what I found is, is that you get what you, you know, there's the secret, the law of attraction, yeah. which, you know, there's some truth in it, but it's mainly a marketing thing. My experience is that it's the law of radiation, not the law of attraction. It's not what you think. It's the energy you send out. It's all about energy. Um, so and, and, and thoughts tend to be linked to energy. Mm. So, yeah, if your thoughts are aligned with your energy, then, yeah, if you have a one focused thought, yeah, you will get it. But it's all about the energy. And I was radiating out love and joy. And that is valuable. And so people would give me money. And I, I've experienced it in many other ways since then. That was 17 years ago. Yeah. I now know I now know how to make money. And the way to make money is to basically be be enlightened. Yeah. How, how, I would love to know how, how long did you actually live underneath the tree for? Seven months. Seven months, wow. Seven months. So I, all that I'm describing, I did for seven months. And mm -hmm. I did it like a scientist. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, this is a technology. This radiating out, you know, getting what you give mm -hmm. this is this is what it means to what goes around comes around this is what karma is it's like the energy and actions that you put out into the world come back to you yeah. must have also been sorry jim and there must have been also an, an eternal process where you're sort of you're obviously living underneath a tree and stuff and you probably got moments where you sit by yourself and stuff there must have been this aspect where it forced you to go deeper within yourself maybe in respect the life that you were living in the past and maybe how are you going to move on from this in the future and stuff um, there wasn't much thought about the future, but yes, there was a lot. Basically, I would, when I was making 40 to 60 pounds, I'd work for an hour a day. Mm -hmm. Not, actually, an hour every three days was enough money because obviously I didn't have rent. Yeah. So I, did, I, did, I, I literally sold the big issue for an hour. And then the rest of the time, I just walked around London. I call it walk the earth like Jules in Pulp Fiction. I just walked the earth. I'd walk down to Brixton, get a 10 pound drawer of weed, walk back to Battersea Park, and I would just chill in the park. And, I, and, and actually, I spent most of my time sitting by the, the lake, watching the water fowl. And at night, I would spend all night walking around the park. I felt like I owned Battersea Park. I felt like I owned London. <laughs> Honestly, I was like awake at night in the park. Not having a roof allows your, whatever you want to call it, your aura, your energy to expand. And so I would feel I would feel one with the universe, like yeah. all day and all night. It could just be, sorry, Jim, I think it could be perception as well, because... A lot of times I do, I do like wild camps and stuff. And we obviously in the modern day life, we live these insulated experiences where you have the houses around you and stuff, and you don't get the, the you don't get the contextualize what's what's above us at all times. And I think that could be could just be this Good sense time. of perception where you actually realizing because you're immersed in it all the time, yeah. you realize and you, you actually tend to look up at the sky and yeah. wonder and think about questions in yeah, your mind. The stars, I mean, yeah. the stars. I, I I've come from. We don't look at the stars enough. Mm. You know, we know from science that the light that we're yeah. seeing left there millions of years ago. You're looking into the past, mm -hmm. and uh, just the miracle of life on Earth. You know, the perspective.
Spinoza said subspecies eternitatis look through the eyes of eternity when you have the night sky you, you see eternity mm-hmm. so it expands your thinking expands your consciousness uh, I'll tell you another one so I became uh, I, they call it a nature mystic and it's a mystical experience brought about by nature mm-hmm. uh, I talked to my tree my, I hugged my tree there was a wizard living in my tree I know it sounds mad but that's the experience I had we're well, not having sex with the tree <laughs> Have no. you seen some of them uh, who have sex with a tree? Oh, well, you think it's all about a woman. <laughs> um, have you not seen that or not lately? No. There was a documentary about it. I can't remember what it's called. I think it's on Vice or something where people were ha- having sex with trees and stuff. You're not seeing it? It's got a certain name. I can't remember it's been going Typical around. Typical of Vice. There. I mean, yeah. I've seen some crazy stuff on Vice. No, I, I didn't know. There was no, I, I didn't even, I'll be honest with you, I didn't wank. And I, I'm a guy that's been wanking his whole life. My whole experience was so blissful that the things that you usually do to give yourself joy and pleasure, yeah. apart from smoking, uh, I didn't do. Um, one time I was blissfully, so I'll tell you about how I started writing poetry because that's a big part of it. But uh, I was blissfully walking around in the park. I think I was uh, writing a poem in my head, which I often did. And I remember I had my eyes closed and I was trying to think of this poem, but I was, I was, in, I was having a real high yeah. sort of peak state. And when I opened my eyes, I was surrounded by squirrels, like surrounded. And I was in the middle of a bit of uh, grass. I wasn't near trees. Yeah. And there must have been, I know I probably exaggerate in my head, but it, excuse me, it felt like hundreds, but it was probably 30 or 40. 30, and I literally turned around and they were all around me and they were all looking at me. And I had the same experience with birds as well. So I had a nature mystic experience where I felt one with nature, the animals, the trees, the stars, everything. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what was the thing? Oh, yeah, the contemplation. Yeah, so I contemplate. I, yeah, I contemplated a lot what had happened the previous year. The marriage, you know, I was contemplating a lot. Stuff. And I, I saw it all leading to the point that I was at. So where I was at in the park was, you know, I couldn't be happier. I often say, and I wouldn't, it's not strictly true, but to some degree, it was the happiest seven months of my life, to some degree. Um, and what happened was three months in, so I'd been having this experience. And three months in, I used to go to the library at Victoria to use the internet uh, to keep in touch with a few people. Uh, and I remember reading something on the internet about Henry David Thoreau, who was a wealthy guy who lived in America in the 18th or 19th century, who gave up his wealth and went to live in the woods. Mm-hmm. And he wrote poetry. He was one of the transcendentalists along with Emerson. And he was described as a warrior poet, the warrior poet, Henry David Thoreau. And when I read those words, I'm big on the words and having trippy experiences. Uh, I read the words warrior poet. I thought, oh, I'm I'm a bit of a warrior poet. I left my privileged life to go and live, not in the woods, but in the park. I should write a poem, you know, if I'm, I'm going to describe myself as a warrior poet. I, and I literally thought, I'm going to write a poem. And as soon as I said that, a poem started appearing in my head. And I went back to my tree and I got a pen and paper and I wrote this poem down. And it was called Battersea Park Bum. And it was a poem about my wife leaving me, everyone disowning me and ending up living in a park and having a great time. Yeah. That's what the poem <laughs> was about. <laughs> yeah. And I sent the poem to Donna, my ex, and a couple of friends. And they came back and they said, oh, that's quite good. And I, and, and, and I just thought, oh, I wonder if I could write another one. Literally, just like, as innocently as that. And as soon as I did that, two poems appeared in my head. And I didn't have a pen and it was too late. I was in the park at the time. So I remember, I'll never forget this. I stayed up all night writing two poems concurrently in my head without being able to write them down. Never been able to do that before. 
And in the morning at six o'clock, I literally had to climb over the park fence, go to a newsagent, get a pen and paper, write them both down. And I was like, I'm a poet. Like, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a poet. I can write poems. It's like, what? I was 35, by the way. Yeah. Never written a poem in my life. And even though I worked in an advertising agency, I didn't work in the creative department. I was always a salesman, businessman. So I didn't think of myself as creative. So, sorry, jump in, jump in, but I, I just want to jump on that point because um, I think everyone's got that within them, you know. Oh, they really have. There's a, um, there's a beautiful lady... I'm thinking about trying to get her, get her on the podcast, but she did a really interesting experience where she went around all the care homes around the UK, and she basically, like, you know, people who sort of on the sort of um, near-deaf sort of, say, like, yeah. you, know, you know what I mean, they've got certain problems and things, yeah. and she went around all these different care homes, and I think it's a world record, actually, or something where she wrote, she got all these different people from all around walks of life to actually write a poem about what was what was the best thing that they experienced in life, and she yes. went, I think she's now went all around Europe as well and stuff like that. But it's just it's fascinating because people were saying that some of the poems in this, like people just read them and they break down crying. Oh, so I think everyone has got that absolutely just within them. No doubt about it. I say, um, as flowers bloom, humans are. We are yeah. naturally artistic. Yeah. We're naturally creative. And I've done workshops many years later. I developed a workshop called The Art of Meaning, where I did exactly that. Mm-hmm. I, I went around to. I've done it with brain injured patients, mentally disabled kids, everyone, all sorts of people yeah. doing exactly that, getting everyone to realise that they're an artist and, and write poetry mm-hmm. and, and perform it. So absolutely. Um, uh, so anyway so I, and then I started write poetry and what I would do is I would when somebody bought a big issue I'd say would you like a poem so I'd do a poem for them That's when they cool. bought the big issue and I would just stop people in the park or walking along would you like a, if I just felt it I would say would you and often people would cry and I'd get these incredible reactions uh, not because the poetry was that good but it, it would just seem to touch touch mm. them it's different as well though isn't it I mean, you don't, you don't your usual day like you don't get someone day. to read your poem exactly. and I think when someone does something like that which is I think everyone knows in the heart that, that is something that's coming from within yeah and then people feel it when in the moment in, in person and they yeah. think oh this is a bit different this is not yeah. this is not someone swearing at us or spitting on us yeah <laughs> and, and it's it's authentic it's just it's an innocent authentic it's, I didn't want anything from them and I wasn't trying to sell them anything yeah. we're so used to everyone trying to sell us yeah, stuff definitely. I was just doing it for the joy of doing it so I think the innocence of it touched people you know some I know when I was reading some some stuff about you and you're talking about how this whole sense was was a process for you of trying to become nobody. That's what you said. I want to try and become a nobody. Yeah. I would actually want to ask you is, is so the process of you trying to sort of become nobody, what did that teach you most about yourself? Uh, well, at the time, I didn't think about it in those terms. Yeah. In the TED Talk, I've kind of looked back on it mm-hmm. because that's actually what happened. I became nobody. When I woke up that morning, because I'd let go of my... You know, we all wear costumes and masks and roles you know, mum, dad, teacher, your job. You know what I mean? We all have, you know, podcasts. Yeah, of course. We everything. all have these roles. When I went into the park, I was, I was nobody. I literally mm. was, I, I was, I didn't have any friends, you know. Mum disowned me. I, I've said, I've told the story. I so was completely stripped, alone, stripped, stripped away. Stripped in here, could sort of say. So every, everything, all the career, all of that, you know, status, money, girls, all that. I None of it. Like, I was nothing. I was a homeless bum. And so when I describe it, I didn't... I mean, now, since then, I have used that to become nobody because of uh, of the power of it. Mm-hmm. But at the time, I didn't see it that way. But what I recognise is that when I woke that up that morning, I feel the reason I had that experience, that kind of Eckhart Tolle experience, was because I'd become nobody. Because mm-hmm. once you empty yourself out of all the false roles and identities that you've 
become attached to. When there's nothing there, then the pure human. And the pure human is just a creative, happy, like a kid, like a, like an angel, you know? It's just like a happy, just wants to have fun and just wants to play and just wants to love. That's that's kind of what we are. And underneath it all, we all, we all just want to be at a constant party. That's what, yeah, you know, yeah. we all just want to be at a party all the time. That's all we want to do. It's like Alan Watts says, I was listening to Alan, amazing Alan Watts um, piece of the video and he's speaking about like the, what is the meaning of love? And he says, love isn't just getting married. Love isn't doing this. He says, what do you really want? To, what do you really want a girlfriend for? He's like, because you want to be played with. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah we want to play. Yeah. That is it. That is literally, that's why we like parties. Yeah. If you if you see adults at a pub, friends having a, we all just want to have a laugh and yeah, play. That's definitely. all we want to do. And basically when everything else was stripped away, I just did what came naturally. Yeah. And because I was in nature and I had the sky and I had the birds and it just, everything amplified that. And then I went out onto the streets and I just played with the big issue. Yeah. And I made 60 pounds an hour. So I just had all these experiences of, oh, there is a real power to innocence. That's how I look. It's the power of innocence. It's not having any manipulative, trying to control, trying to get avaricious, trying to manipulate control, which is what we're normally doing. Just innocently expressing natural play and, yeah, and love. And that... It's still, you know, and I, I went on to have a very long career as a poet, but that is that is my power. My power is the ability to, or if I if I have a power, it's the power to surrender, empty out, let go of stuff, and be filled by nature, to be filled by what's natural. Mm-hmm. And I feel that what is natural is play and laughter and fun and you know that's that's what i got filled with and poetry that's how the poetry came it, it's a form of play isn't it play yeah, of, of words and so the poetry came out and what, what i was going to say was that that first time i ever performed on a stage i remember i almost collapsed off the stage and i went down to the really scummy toilets they had in there because i just needed to be alone and i went into the stall and i fell onto my knees and oh, I, I, I neglected to mention that that first night that I went into the park, I literally stood up and I said, OK, universe, OK, God, you've shown me what I'm not supposed to do with my life, i.e. the advertising career. You've shown me that that life wasn't for me, but you haven't shown me what I'm supposed to do. So I'm going to live in the park. I'm going to be a nobody. I think I might have said that, actually. Yeah. I'm going to be a bum. I'm going to be a nobody until you show me what the purpose of my life mm-hmm. is. I remember reading a quote by Mark Twain, the two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. And I I had it in my head that I didn't know the purpose of my life. So I said, right, until I know the purpose of my life, I'm just gonna be a bum, I don't care, I give up. That's what I said on the first night and then about, when did I go to, when did I perform for the first time? Maybe July, August, uh, I went down to the toilet and I was like, I realized this is it. This is my purpose, I found it. And I, I remember just, giving thanks that I'd found my purpose. And I pretty much in different forms, but that standing up, using my voice to entertain and inspire people has been what I've done for the last 17 years. So then, so, so, what, so what was the moment like? So I know you said that you were inspired to sort of change your life, but was how long did you actually live underneath the tree for, did you say again? So I was there from April to October, 2002. It's like six, 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 seven, seven months. Seven and um, so what happened was is, uh, and, I, and I honestly, I never thought I'd ever leave. When I went in there and when I was in the park, that's why I said to you, I never thought about the future. But you're completely satisfied as well. Yeah, Anything I was blissfully happy. I'm, yeah, I mean, yeah. I literally, it was like, an, I, it was like, I wasn't enlightenment. I know that now. I wasn't enlightened because... But you just thought it was sort of time or something. I, 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 was, just, I was just completely happy. Yeah. I was just completely happy all the time. 
Yeah, but I'm saying, though, did you did you get to a point where you just thought it's it's maybe time now to sort of to move to on move. and use? No, yeah. Well, this is what this is what yeah. happened. This is what I mean is that what most of the time I was there, I never thought about the future. Mm-hmm. I never thought about you know practical things. Well, for example, I never thought, well, I can't live in the park during the winter. Yeah, that's so a practical consideration. Yeah, so you were just trying to be in the moment, sort of. Uh, yeah, I just—I wasn't even trying. I just was. You know yeah. what I mean? It just yeah, didn't didn't cool. occur to me. It was—it was like being a child again. It really was like the innocence and the childlike. I just didn't think about adult things. Uh, so what happened was is that there were two guys who ran a market stall near where I sell the big issue, Errol and Paul, who I used to change. If I got a lot of change, I would take it to them, and they would—I'd give them change, and they'd give me a twenty-pound note or whatever. So I got chatting to them told them that I lived in under a tree in a park they were like what and then so I knew them for quite a while and then one day maybe in September they said look a room has come up in our squat do you you want the room and it was September and I think it was getting a little bit chilly and it just they asked me and I just said okay yeah like that and they said okay well after we finished come with us and it was in Pimlico so again it was in between Battersea Park and Victoria so I went with them and it was amazing. It was this house, a muse house in Pimlico. So stunning, ridiculously expensive. I don't know what it would cost, a million pounds or something. But it was completely run down. It was a squat. Because yeah. the landlord had left it to run down. So these squats were in there. And it turned out Errol was a crack addict and Paul was a heroin addict. And there were rats in the bottom room. There were rats basically just down from where my bed, bedroom was. Mm. But I didn't, I didn't care. I, I was in this kind of really yeah. innocent state. And I just said, okay, I'll take it. And I remember the first night I stayed there, I went to stay there and the rats were scurrying around and I just didn't like the roof. I didn't like having in, I was in a box. I felt like I was in a box. You've got to remember, I'd been outdoors for six months with the sky only for six months. I'd got myself a waterproof rubber sort of blanket. So when it rained, I was fine. But I hated it. I hated it. I literally left and kept. So what I did is I'd sleep in the park, come back, and stay in the room in the mornings kind of thing and then go and sell the big issue or hang in the room and watch the little black and white television. So I started to gradually, it took me a while basically to get used to. And I think it was late October, it was about a month when I started living in the squat and that's when I started thinking about the future because oh, okay, so now I'm a squatter. But also what happened was after that first time at the the open mic, Mm -hmm. I started to go every week and I'd gone three weeks and somebody saw me and they said, we want to book you and pay you to perform. So that was the first time I was a professional ah, cool. poet. And they booked me to perform at a show called the Metaconceptual Cabaret at a place called the 491 Gallery, which is this radical art art squat, but legal squat kind of place, community centre. So I went up there on a Saturday night. Uh, how much did they pay? I think they paid me £50 and I was on the bill and I walked into this place and it was packed with the coolest people I'd ever come across. You remember, I came from advertising quite square. Yeah, definitely. Money, but square. Yeah. And now I walked into a place where it was musicians and artists and radical, you know, just it was completely bohemian to me. But I thought it was amazing. So I walked in, there's about 150 people in there packed, bands playing, DJ and saw Michelle and she said, okay, you're on in a minute. And I, anyway, I went up, did my set and I absolutely smashed it. Like I was the star of the show. Everyone said that I was, just, and literally it was the first time I'd ever done a paid performance. And again, I'm not saying that to boast. I'm just saying what the experience was yeah, like. Yeah, of course. I didn't expect to, I didn't even know they'd like it, but they fucking loved it. And I, I still say to this day about 12 of my best mates 
17 years later I met on that one night that's cool so the good thing about being a poet is that when you come off stage you're just with the audience so you, you make friends mm-hmm. so I came off and I just made loads of friends and had an amazing one of the best nights of my life basically uh, danced to drum and bass all the rest of the night and what happened was I became involved part of that community and I lived there and from that point on I just made all these friends who were basically hippies new agers activists you know you name it countercultural alternative yeah, types yeah. and uh, th- and then we started putting on our own shows and parties I started putting on my own cabaret night and I just very quickly in about so this happened in October uh, by October of the next year I was the famous poet paradox I w- I'd go places and get recognised on the street like within a year of leaving the park I went from nobody to a career doing something that I loved more than anything else and being a, you know, like a Z-list celebrity in a very small pond. Obviously only in the small pond of radical countercultural. But, um, and I am, I'm famous. I've been called a legend many times, many, many times. Um, But I'm just a bloke who went to live under a tree in a park. And this thing happened to me. You know, I'm not special. I'm fucking mediocre as i said in my ted talk i'm i'm a mediocre i haven't got any great skills i'm not particularly intelligent but the one thing i did is i surrendered i surrendered to life and life has given me everything that i've got since yeah i love that because through all the story that you've told us people pray to doing this obviously the story that you've just unfolded to me there to me obviously that's it's been a huge impact and it's changed the whole trajectory of your life but probably before you started this, people would have viewed your what you were gonna and do as sort of a de-evolution because people think in modern society now, if you you've got you, the the ev- evolution is to get the big house, to get the big job, to sort of have the traditional marriage and still have the kids and live happily ever after. Totally. So people would view you as a de-evolution. I was a but, loser. Yeah, but for you, it was more of actually an evolution. Totally. Yeah. I mean, I I, I joke about it all the time. It's like a loser, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I absolutely I had it all, crashed and burned. Mm-hmm ended up homeless in the park mm-hmm. uh, absolutely from the traditional normal human perspective it was a it was a nightmare it was a fuck up and yeah the day I moved into the park it was that that was my experience of it I'd lost it all uh, there was one saving grace which was the kind of you know the, the spiritual awakening that I'd had with the nothing but angels thing that was still with me that experience was still real. So I knew that there was a perception of life mm-hmm. different to the normal one, which brought with it peace and joy. And when I went into the park, I kind of, I was still holding on to that. Mm-hmm. And that's why I said, look, I'm just going to be in the park until I know what I'm supposed to do. Because I know there's more to life than, than the material stuff that I had. Yeah. I just don't know how to find it. And I don't know what to do I just don't know what to do so I'm just going to be nobody and see what happens and as I said literally the first morning I woke up I was back into that nothing but angel space Mm. so it just came back immediately it's funny because when you were seeing talking before the aspect of surrender because I think that's really powerful because that's what you did in your journey you surrendered and I I think there's been there's been loads of experiences in life where I think the the, the universe provides you that window to where you need to surrender and I think it because I think in our daily lives we keep thinking I'm, I'm very similar as well where I think like I can just figure out all my problems myself but there is aspects of where I do see a window where you need if you do surrender yeah. the universe will sort of come through you and it'll yeah. guide you in a certain direction yeah. every what, time yeah it's 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 foolproof if you genuinely surrender it's got to be genuine mm-hmm. because you know most of the time and it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with it but most of the time we do try to control 
we can try to control our lives, even though we know we can't. You know, yeah. nobody can stop themselves getting cancer. No one can stop themselves being in an accident. No one can stop themselves losing their job. So all the things, no one can stop their partner leaving them. Yeah. Want a want a ball that's spinning through space at a million miles an well, hour? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like we are not in control. Like we are not in control. But we live as though we can control. Or a flat ball. <laughs> or a, yeah. Oh, let's not go there. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, but we live as though we can control things. So it's kind of delusional. We're kind of crazy yeah. to think we can control anything. It's crazy. But that is that's the normal way of living so but when certain things happen so often you know you people who i've heard a lot of people have stories similar to mine it's usually you know you're diagnosed with cancer somebody close to you dies Mm -hmm. so it's usually a crisis something something terrible happening it would be better if it wasn't that way but often that is the way and that's what opens that window for surrender so you're in that situation where you you realize really clearly oh my god i can't control anything Mm. and when you have that that realization that epiphany i'm not in control i can't control anything you've got a choice you can either go in to stay with the fear and then you go super controlling super arm and it's super fearful super closed down because you're you're trying to protect yourself from everything or you just go open and it, oh fuck it yeah what will be will be i sometimes question as well maybe the universe does that on purpose if, if see if you see if you're not in, in, in the, on the right path maybe the universe comes along and it'll see and it'll put something in the game and go nah, you need to do this or and it sounds horrible maybe it is something that is a disease or maybe it's something that just completely changes the whole aspect Pretty of your life Pretty much everyone that's had that yeah. happen will say what I will say is hell yeah, yeah. I, I, you know again it's my understanding of oneness so my understanding of life is based on it's a unified field mm-hmm. and if it is a unified field that, that the universe is you mm-hmm. it's you doing it to yourself it's your higher self or your future self that knows you're on the wrong path sending you a kick up the ass you know i've had losing my leg the same thing i experience all the tragedies of my life as wake-up calls and the call is to surrender and to realize that instead of trying this is what i said in my ted talk instead of trying to battle against the forces beyond your control is align with the single force beyond your control that wants what's good for you, which is your life force. Mm-hmm. I mean, the thing that makes me alive, the thing that animates me is on my side. Mm-hmm. And it's it's beating my heart. It's bre- it's doing all these bodily processes. I'm not doing them. I'm, my intellect, my brain isn't figuring out how to fucking digest my food. Do you yeah, know what course, I mean? Or how to clean my blood. That super intelligence that is running my body yeah. It's way more intelligent than me. Like, why would I think I can control life when I've got that? So it's surrender to that. Surrender to your life force. Surrender to your bodily presence and energy and let that run your life. And I'm telling you, Dan, it's taken me 17 years. I had it in the park. I had it down Mm -hmm. to 60 pounds an hour, you know, work an hour a week kind of thing in bliss. Mm -hmm. And I lost it. And funny enough, I lost it because of the poetry. Even though the poetry has been wonderful and it's given me a career, it brought my ego back. Oh, it's interesting, though. Yeah, and, and this is, I always say this to people. is like the, the, that day that I said when I stood on the stage and I got the round of applause, it, it did give me a purpose in life, which was good, and I followed that purpose, and, and a purpose is really important, but it brought my ego back in because oh, they love me. Yeah. They love me. I am a ma- I had a role again. I had a mask again. But you have what you have, what you have now is you have a greater compass to sort of keep that in check. That's yeah, what, that's what took seventeen yeah. years. It's like it took me seventeen years of dancing with my ego yeah. to come to a place where I recognise, okay, 
it's okay to have an ego. We all have an ego. There's, no, there's nothing wrong with having an ego. It's whether or not the ego is running your life. That's the difference. Yeah, it's like, I've got an ego totally. It's like, and I can use it for certain things. I'm using it for this. I'm telling my story from my yeah, ego. Of course, Do you know what I mean? But it's like, but am I going to let my ego needs, my perceived needs of my ego, my need for status and to be seen as this or seen as that, and am I going to let that make my decisions for me? Yeah. Hell no. I'm going to let my gut and my heart make my decisions for me. I'm going to go with my gut. Where, what do I do now? I listen. I don't, you know, I've got this thing, don't listen to yourself. Don't believe yourself. Mm-hmm. Like the voice in the head, my experience, it's always wrong. <laughs> always. 100% of the time. Because it's operating such limited information. Yeah. Like the amount of information coming into your body is about a billion times more than you can consciously process. Yeah. So it's like this tiny little idiot thing thinking it knows what's going on. Yeah. It's got, it hasn't got a clue. Yeah. So it's, if you just think your mind is, and I don't mean the mind of the sensible, the, the, the deliberate thinking mind of the problem yeah, solver. I know what you mean. You know what I mean? Like the, the discursive mo- mind. The monkey mind. The monkey mind. Yeah. Always wrong. So once you know that, you just, whenever you find yourself telling yourself stories about how things are, oh no, I don't know, I'm wrong. And then you just go into your body, and then and, and then your, your gut will tell you. Yeah, that, that's it's that that's how I, and that's that's how you deal with the ego. It's not about smashing your ego or being woke or I hate that word so much. Being woke or being spiritual, or being anything. It's just allowing your bodily intuition and instinct and your heartfelt sense of right and wrong to guide you. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, definitely. With the aspect of like sort of the experience that you went through, do you feel that I know you said you didn't really have a you didn't really have a purpose before, you just had more of a calling. But do you feel like the whole process sort of you got out of it what you needed? Oh yeah. Uh so I went into the park with very radicalized and so I had this I've always had these two parallel streams. So the radical banking system, yeah. the elites running the world and you know, all the stuff that goes on against the planet and humanity, blah blah blah. And I had this we're all one, it's all love, hippie love, yeah. unconditional love. And they've always battled against each other. So I went for a long period of doing hardcore. I became a radical political poet. And um, and I kind of went off the path, if I'm honest with you. So what I was saying to you before we were talking yeah. is that those people that have are on their soapbox trying to change the world, that is the, the wounded child within. That, that's what it is. It comes from their wounding. Mm. Anyone who's on a crusade, anyone who's woke or PC or trying to change the world or white supremacists, anyone who's an extremist, whether it's on the left or the right, who thinks they know that the world should be the way they think it is. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> is a wounded, terrified little child. That's all it is. If you just look in the world, that's what yeah. it is. It's, it's fear. It's people's fear and wounds running everything. So what I did is I went into that because m- most of my friends were kind of, you know, we were either artists or we were new agers or we were radical, politi- you know? Mm. So I was in that thing and it's very heady you know it gives you a lot of passion and you feel like you're making changing the world you feel like you're making a difference so it's, it's very seductive and I was in that for a long time and I kind of lost what I found in the park if I'm honest with you but when I lost my leg I came back to it so the experience of losing my le- leg was was very similar to going into the park I lost my identity I lost my status I was now a disabled person uh, I was now a cripple you know mm. uh I fucked up again. You know what I mean? I was a loser again. Yeah. Uh, and the same thing happened. I emptied out and I was filled with bliss. I was the happiest one-legged bloke you'd ever come across. And that's when I started developing my workshop. So it was the same thing. I, I had to, I'm really a slow learner. I had to learn the same lesson six years later all over again. And funny enough, I learned the same lesson 
about a year and a half ago when my life fell apart when I was living in Totnes and a woman left me. That, that, that's a funny thing though, because I think that's what in my life what I've noticed is that if you because these lessons come all the time, they yeah. keep coming. You can fit, if you're in tune with them, you can see these lessons yeah. coming. And you obviously the ego mind tries to really just avoid them and just think, no, yeah. I'm better than that lesson. Yeah. I'm better than that lesson. Yeah. Oh, I, I've grown, grown out of that. Yeah, 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 exactly. And then it'll keep coming, and then before you know it, it'll it'll come back again. It'll come back again. It'll come back again. Yeah. It might be bigger next time. Get bigger and bigger. It will until usually you, get bigger until you fear. Until you get it. Yeah, that, yeah. This is what you need to look at. This is the this is the wound, the fear, the hang up, the block that you've got. And all it is is you, the future you, higher you, trying to help you. It's re- All of them are like wake-up causes. Look, actually, you've got a purpose to fulfill. You were born for a purpose, I, I believe. Yeah. And you're off the path. You're, you're, you're chasing happiness where you'll never find it, which is outside yeah, of yourself. It's funny because what I've recognised as well is that I think sometimes that the higher self doesn't what I've noticed is a higher self doesn't really care about sort of who you are like it doesn't care about your name it doesn't care about your job it doesn't care all your emotions in your mind it actually what the higher self is doing is looking at the bigger part yeah. of the evolution of the self it knows that you're you're much greater than any of the things you think you are even if I wanted to be the world's greatest poet yeah mm. who I actually am is way greater than that because who I am is somebody that can love people like love like for an individual, what we the reason that we're scared and scared little wounded children mm. is because we lack love. We all want love. That's all we want. If you can love someone, really unconditionally love someone, like a mum loves a child, that is the most profound gift you can give to anyone. And if you can do that for one person, that makes you greater than the greatest fucking artist ever. Yeah. So it's like the idea that your ego wants you to be famous or rich or whatever, those things are actually small fry compared to what your higher self wants. What I want to do with my art now is catalyze or trigger or inspire i love myself now like i've i've reached the same place of self-love that i had in the park it's taken me 17 years of making mistakes and fucking up and losing my leg and i've made so many mistakes it's Mm. it's untrue but i've i've finally learned from them and now i know what the fundamentals are the fundamentals are is when you're feeling scared when you attack somebody else when you judge someone else when you're when you behave in a negative way it's because you want love so bring the love to yourself don't try and get love from a woman or from the world validating don't try and get validation or love that's what we're all trying to do it's like you'll never get happiness from outside you'll never be validated by anything you ever do the only validation that you'll ever get and that you'll ever need is your own Mm. love yourself love your wounded child like a parent as a child that is it once you've got that that's the foundation everything else happens on top of that so i've just built my life around making sure that i'm living in a way that allows me to keep loving myself because obviously if you if you if you if you cheat or lie or or do things that you know you shouldn't do you can't love yourself you feel ashamed you feel guilty so you've got to live that's what that's what it means to be a a good person it's not because you're better than anyone it's just that you know that if you're not a good person you won't like yourself and you don't want guilt on your conscience and if you can get guilt out of your conscience and be open and transparent so that you never have to feel uh, feel guilty then then the innocence comes innocence and guilt that's that's the power it's the power of innocence when your conscience is clear when you act and live and speak in a way that you like mm-hmm. about yourself and you love yourself you can do anything that's yeah. that's how i feel i love that i think we should leave it there yeah the okay. cameras are going dead as well so okay cool. Really cool perfect what a cool conversation good. nice Thank one bro nice so one. cool so cool i'm glad you got a good one Boom, boom, boom. what a powerful podcast conversation that was it definitely was such an inspiring journey And for me, that's definitely one of them podcasts that for me will definitely stick long in the memory of 
an interesting journey and, and a guy who really did go on an interesting quest and really did find himself. So I know for a fact you would have loved that conversation. It really was a powerful one. And I just wanted to mention again, as I did in the intro, that please, if you can, check out the Breaking Convention. As I mentioned, it's one of the biggest psychedelic conferences in the world. It has over 200 speakers and it's coming up in about three weeks' time from this podcast. The dates are the 16th of August to the 18th of August. I'm going to be there, so if you're there, I'm sure we'll be able to, we'll be able to meet up for a bit. And in the process as well, there really is some outstanding guests and outstanding people who are going to be speaking at this event. So definitely, I recommend checking that out. Please check out the Patreon page. As always, it's the best way to support this thing. Also have a one-off donation option. And I want to say thank you so much for all the current patrons and the people who have supported the podcast. It really is a powerful thing and it means a lot to me. So anyway, just to play this conversation out as I do every single week, I'm going to play a song called One Soul and One Physical Human. It's by a young artist called Josh Ryan. Really is a cool song. So anyway, I'll catch you next week. We have another amazing conversation as always. Peace out. Went from hustling and running the streets To meditating in the tropics with the sun on my feet He's grounded to the earth, peace running beneath The souls of the souls touching the streets I feel that, I guess you could call it magic in kind of ways Name another man you know that fasted for 90 days Straight, I've been on a fucking mission fam To figure what's missing, I'm destined for brighter days that's how I know there's more to it I won't speak on the issue unless I know I've walked through it As a witness myself, knowledge sits on them shelves Learn through my footsteps and not what you're doing Because we're so unique in our own way So what we need to seek peace will be our own way I don't preach one shoe fits all, one shoe fitted you But for me there was no lace Wrong place but the right time The way you see it might be different to my eyesight The way I see it might be conflicting Your way of shifting perceptions to suit what your mind likes uh, That's deep in it, unique tunnel visions Each seeing things different Yeah, that's mad in it, same place But you grew up with your dad in it That's why you can't relate to that person Same gate but his fate wasn't certain that's why you can't relate to that journey Same plane but his dates were just early That's why you can't relate to that music One mic but two people that use it That's why we all relate to confusion One soul and one physical human <laughs>